guys, but for the grown-ups, um, before we spend a bit of a moment in community time like we, we normally might, I, I wanted to sort of introduce the theme this morning because the plagues of Egypt covers four chapters of the Bible. If we were going to read the whole thing, it would take about 20 minutes of the service. So I'm going to do things a little bit differently this morning. I'm going to be sort of skimming through these chapters and asking you to go home and read them in your own time. I'm going to be giving you sort of a, a high-level overview and, uh, and then if you wish to dive down a little bit deeper, you can do so in, in, your, own, in your own time. It's a story of a foolish king, a foolish pharaoh, a hard-hearted pharaoh. I think one of the things that we foolishly tend to buy into today, so I don't like me when I move too far that direction, one of the things we foolishly buy into today, I think, is that we tend to think that that we're much smarter than generations that have gone before us. One of the foolish things that I think many people in the world today tend to assume is that as a species, humankind is on this kind of upward trajectory, away from the dark ages onto ever more enlightened and, and to a sophisticated future. There's a none too subtle assumption, I think, on many of we moderns that we're somehow somehow better people than those people in those old grainy photographs or in, in the history books. They sort of assume that this current generation is somehow much better than their, than their grandparents' generation. Now, that would be awesome if it were true, but friends, it's just not true. It's not true at all. It's an, actually an incredibly arrogant and it's an incredibly ignorant way of thinking about the world and of thinking about your own place within it. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that we're not much more technologically advanced than generations past. We certainly are. And I'm very, very thankful for the, the wonders of modern medicine. We should be very, very thankful for the marvelous communications technology that we have for faster cars and safer cars, all of that stuff. I'm not saying we don't have more and better stuff and that they're not all wonderful blessings from God. They're all great. I love being able to fly to the other side of the world in a day. Isn't that a marvelous invention? Aren't we blessed to live in this wonderful time? We should be thanking God for the day in which we live where all of this stuff is, is possible. But despite all of our gadgets, despite all of our intercontinental travel and our wonderfully fast and wonderfully fancy cars, there's a, a really foolish, sinful pride at work deep in the heart of, of every human soul. It's a sinfulness deep in the heart of every human soul that, that is a sinful form of, of pride. It's a foolish pride that wells up within within each of us. It's a foolish, sinful pride that says we know better than God, that think we can second guess, we can second guess God. Ultimately, what I'm going to be saying this morning and what I hope you can see through these terrible plagues is that each of us still today sets ourselves up as, as a little mini pharaoh, a little mini pharaoh in our lives. Whenever we do that, friends, whenever we set ourselves up as little mini gods, it always is going to end in tears like we see here today. These plagues of Egypt uh, is going to be God answering the question of Pharaoh that Moses put to him back in chapter 5. Moses, if you've been with us so far on the journey, you'll know that Moses has already confronted Pharaoh. If you were with us at camp last week, you'll know that you'll have heard Carly preach that 
and with his staff, God has told Moses, what have you got in your hand? And he's already confronted Pharaoh. It's turned into a snake. But Pharaoh has hardened his heart. He's refused to yield. And he's asked this question, who is this Lord that I should obey him? In chapter 5, verse 2, if you want to have a look, chapter 5, verse 2, who is this Lord? Who is this God that I should obey him? I reckon it's a very modern question. It's a timeless question throughout the generations. In fact, it's a rec- I reckon it's a question each of us asks. I reckon it's a question that our culture asks every single day. What Pharaoh shows us with that fateful question is that humankind hasn't really changed at all. As progressive as we might like to think we are, the fact is that you and I are just like the Pharaohs of old. Not a stretch to say that we're much like the pharaohs of old. Pharaoh, like ourselves in modern, West, in modern Western countries, very rich, had everything that he could possibly want. He got everything that he want when he wanted it, much like Aussies today. Bear in mind, of course, we're, we have the sort of wealth that an ancient pharaoh could only dream of. We eat in a way that an ancient king could never even contemplate it. Walk out into the mall. How many different cultures and cuisines is available to we ordinary Aussies? We are, in, we are spectacularly wealthy. I know it doesn't feel like that. But compared to most of humanity throughout the course of time, we are spectacularly wealthy. And like Pharaoh, we live in an age of religious pluralism. We live with a pantheon of, of gods around us. These Egyptians that were about to get smacked down by God had over 100 gods. They worshipped over a hundred gods. And plus they're the gods of the nations around them. So it should come as no surprise that the Hebrews have their God. Pharaoh is not going to be offended by the fact that the Hebrews have their own God. That wasn't particularly offensive in and of itself. Again, he's in a situation much like today. Not offensive that we have our own God. Aussies, I think, yeah, Pete, that's good for you. Whatever floats your boat, mate. Someone actually said that to me. Whatever floats your boat. Uh, my mate's on the tennis court. Um, big shout out to Stu Quine if you're listening. Climber District Shell Harbour Tennis Champions, Division 3, 2015. Whatever floats your boat, Pete, whatever floats your boat, you do you. Have you heard that before? You do you, right? If you need to go to your little church on Sunday, if you need to if, do whatever you need to do, if it makes you feel better, that's fine, right? But just don't, just don't bring it out in the public square. What Pharaoh is getting angry here is not the fact that the Hebrews have their God and their little God. I mean, it's a patronizing kind of attitude, but it wasn't particularly the problem. The problem is when you start to assume that this God of yours has some influence over me, has a right to tell me what to do with my life. It's not a problem to believe in God unless you're saying that your God might want to tell me how to live my life. And that's where we start running into trouble. If there's one thing that our society cannot tolerate today, it's some deity impending on, our, impending on our own freedoms and our own desires. Ultimately, we each, and listen out to the, in the text, we're not going to be reading every word of it, but listen out as we run quickly run through each of these ten plagues, how ultimately Pharaoh wanted to be his own God. We're reflecting how ultimately we might want to be our own God. We might not say it like that. You won't hear Aussies say it like that. They won't use such openly religious language that I'm my own God, but that's what they do. That's certainly how they live. And let's be honest, it's how we in the church act as well. Ministers, pastors are not 
are not immune from it. We don't admit it, but that is, in effect, how we live. We set ourselves up as little mini-gods deciding what's right and true for me. Who is this God that tells me what to do? For I am my own God. In fact, it went so far back in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary actually had the word of the year. You know how every year they come out with the word of the year? 2016, the word of the year was post-truth. Can you believe that? Post-truth. It's the idea that objective facts aren't as influential in shaping public opinion as appeals to emotion or personal belief. Now, this in itself should blow away any notion that we're superior to generations past because this is a colossally stupid idea, a stupid concept. It doesn't really matter what the facts are as long as I'm happy. It doesn't actually matter what, what science tells. It doesn't actually matter what the objective truth is as long as I get my way, as long as I feel good. There's no objective truth out in the world today. There's no authority but my own authority. Rather than submitting to an all-powerful God, people would rather live by the words of a famous poem called Invictus. But by a fellow called William Ernest Headley. And it says this, he says, No matter how straight the gate, no matter how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We love that stuff today. I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my soul. I reckon if some rapper put a backbeat behind that with some guys working out, driving a Lamborghini, they'd make a squillion dollars. You heard it all, but you go for it. As long as you give me a little bit of a credit, you'd make a squillion, you get a million hits. I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my own soul. We love that stuff. We lap it up today. It's what was happening still back then in ancient Egypt. Who is this Lord who tells me what to do. Why should I obey him? God is about to answer that question emphatically. But just quickly, I want you to spend a minute or two chatting to your neighbour. If you've got a Bible, go and grab one up. We're going to be moving through pretty quick, working through all of these 10 plagues. Uh, Open up your iPhone, your iPad, open up to Exodus chapter 7. Maybe be asking your neighbour, what are the gods of our age today? Little, Little case G, what are the little case gods of modern Australia, 30 seconds. Go for it, church. See you in a second. If you haven't got an app on your phone, you might have to try BibleGateway.com. Renee's walking around with hard copy Bibles. If you haven't got a Bible, we'll give you one. Please don't leave today. If you haven't got a Bible in your home, we can give you one. But you want Exodus chapter 7. You can even just abbreviate it. If you go to BibleGateway.com, just type in EX space 7, it'll find it for you. Look at it in any language you want, any version you might like. We'll do things a little bit differently today. 
my puny earth brain can't contain all of the information that I want to download to you about these 10 different plagues, so I'm going to have to refer to my notes a little bit more. It's story time with Pete this morning. I hope that's okay. So not so much wandering around. The guys at the back don't like me wandering around quite so much, so I'm stationary today. I hope that's okay. It'll take us about 20 minutes to read the right, to read the whole thing through, so we're not going to read all of it. We're just going to skim through it. Um, and I think we're all adults. You can go back and read it in your, in your own time. It's Exodus chapter 7. If you haven't been with us in the last few weeks, here's the setup. Uh, God's people, the Hebrews, have been enslaved in Egypt for four or 500 years at this point. And God has called uh, an 80-year-old exile, an 80-year-old shepherd by the name of Moses. He's a, a murderer. He's been an outcast, exile. And he's been called by God to do a really big job, a really difficult job to confront Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world, with this famous message, let my people go, that they may, that they may worship me. But Pharaoh has hardened his heart and refused uh, to let the people go. And note that the reason, uh, in, if you've got it open there in verse 16 of chapter 7, the reason for freedom is that they might worship God. It's not just freedom for freedom's sake, it's freedom in order that they might actually worship God. God or to serve God. There's a link between freedom and service uh, to God. By the way, the word that's used for the freedom and the service of God is the same word that's been used for the slavery that they've been enduring under the Egyptians. The Anglican prayer book actually says, service to God is perfect freedom. Service to God is perfect freedom. So note that freedom isn't an absence of rules. Freedom isn't an ability to do whatever it whatever you want, right? Freedom, being free, is actually following God's good life-giving plan for your life. So as we, as we run through these plagues, listen to the lesson that they tell. If you violate God's good created order with him as Lord, with God as sovereign, Yahweh, the God who simply is as sovereign, things are going to eventually going to go to hell. Uh, there is God created the world with good order. He knows how it is best lived. He's the author of life. And if you buck against it, you're going to suffer the consequences. So listen for how the plagues maybe represent a, a degeneration. If you go back and have a read this week, there is a sense, the scholars tell us, that there is an undoing of creation happening here. We read about creation back in Genesis. There's an undoing of creation. This is an attack on the order of creation. If you look at uh, verse 25 of chapter 7, if you've got it open, you're almost invited to see that, right? right? It's an undoing of creation. It's an attack on the good ordering of creation. It's important to note, uh, many, yeah, if you've heard a sermon on this before, they might, the minister might have run through where every different plague was an attack on an Egyptian god. I don't have time for that this morning. But each one of these plagues is a takedown. It's, 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 a, it's a smack in the face of these false gods from Egypt that are, that are no gods at all. There's an upward trajectory from the waters up into the sky. Again, thinking creation. There's lots of little patterns. Every third plague, Moses doesn't even get a warning. But we're going we're gonna to race through because these are devastating proofs to Pharaoh that he's not God, that he's not God. In fact, by the end of his rebellion, not only is he not a god, he's not even Pharaoh. In fact, by the end of his rebellion, he's not even a man. He's died. It's going to cost him his life. God gives Pharaoh an opportunity to yield, to surrender, to obey, but Pharaoh hardens his heart after every plague, willfully rejects God, and nature itself starts to rebel. 
If you haven't got it up there at chapter 7, you'll see verse 5 or verse 17. You're going to see this phrase over and over and over again, so that you would know that I am the Lord. These are not plagues just sent by God because he's a cruel manipulator. These are sent for a reason, that they might know that there is a God in heaven who controls the very laws of, of nature. So, chapter 7 in verse 14, first of these terrible plagues commenced. God, through Moses and his older brother Aaron, who's Moses' sort of spokesperson, if you know the story, you know that Moses has a, a, maybe a speech impediment, we think, and you know that he's slow of tongue. So his brother and he form a wonderful team. Aaron is his spokesperson. And they turn, God turns the river Nile to blood. That's the first of the plagues. The fish die and the place, the place stinks. This is perhaps a punishment, if you know the story, been following along with us for the tremendous evil that had been taking place in that land of all the male Hebrew babies that had been thrown into the Nile. Do you remember that, those of you who have been travelling along? The babies have been, the male babies have been thrown into the Nile. This is... God's divine, just retribution. Remember too, the Nile was a source of life for Egypt. As the Nile went, so did Egypt. The reason it rose to become the world power was because of the life-giving power of the Nile. Every second, tons of water, of fresh water of life would flow past their doorstep. And now they're reduced to digging holes just to scratch away some some filthy, dirty water just to drink and, and to stay alive. It didn't have to be like that. They had this wonderful resource at their doorstep, but they had rebelled, and now they are suffering the consequences. Interestingly, have a look at verse 22, if you've got it open in front of you. Pharaoh's magicians were able to replicate this sign. It's an interesting one, isn't it? So Pharaoh's occult magicians were able to replicate this sign. As a little aside, I think it's a warning here that the occult is real. Evil is real, and it is dangerous. Don't mess with it. Don't mess with it. I heard this wonderful illustration from another Christian author, like a Paul David Tripp, talking about the power of, of imitation, of, 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 of spiritual imitation. He says, if, if you subscribe or you surrender yourself or you give yourself over to any spiritual authority other than Christ, it's like stapling apples to trees. Picking up apples off the ground and stapling them to a tree. It'll look good for a little while. It'll look fancy for a little while. It'll look impressive. Wow, look at this. But after a while, it'll start to rot and it will start to stink. Friends, please make sure that you're not following a counterfeit, yielding only to Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. All else is stapling apples to trees. We read in verse 23 that Pharaoh is unmoved, however. Pharaoh, this terrible plague, despite it all, he doesn't, he's unmoved. He refuses to yield his, his heart. Note also that this spectacular miracle doesn't produce faith in Pharaoh. How often do you hear, if only God you'd come down and show me some spectacular sign. If only he came down and did something spectacular, then I'd believe. It's not true, friends. Don't believe that. If you've got a hard heart, nothing is going to break through that hard, crusted heart, even a, a miracle like a river turning to blood. So after seven days of blood, we move up out of the water to an amphibious assault, an amphibious invasion of, of frogs at the start of chapter 8. 
in their houses, note the progression, in their houses, in their beds, in their ovens, in their mixing bowls, they're everywhere. Again, note in verse 7 of chapter 8, the magicians are able to replicate this. But now Pharaoh is starting to want relief. Pharaoh is now starting to go, whoa, what's going on here? And in verse 8, he actually asks Moses and Aaron for some, for some relief. He asks, please stop this. And so Moses and Aaron relent and they, they make the frogs disappear. But verse 15 of chapter 8 is huge. Have a look at it if you've got it open in front of you, 8.15. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. There it is again. And he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as God had predicted that he wouldn't. The moment the frogs were gone, Pharaoh hardens his heart again. It's like, I'm the captain of my own soul. I'm the master of my own fate again. So many of us are guilty of this still today, aren't we? When things get difficult and tough, we cry out to God, oh, Lord, help me, I'm yours, I'll do whatever you want. But as soon as that moment has passed, I'm the captain of my own fate. In fact, we might even be tempted to claim credit for the victory. It's blasphemy blasphemy. Be on the lookout for that. The third plague, moving quickly along, leaves the waters altogether, takes the form of an airborne invasion, the form of gnats. We probably call them sandflies here in Australia. You get attacked by sandflies if you go on holidays as a kid to Bermagui or Foster Tuncurry, wouldn't we? Sandflies, we'd call them here in Australia. And what's interesting at this point is that here the magicians tap out. You to note here that Pharaoh's magicians couldn't replicate this sign. It's interesting that the smallest of creatures is what brings them undone. Again, Pharaoh's heart is hard and unyielding. The fourth plague is that of flies. What's interesting to note here in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 8 is that God starts to differentiate here between the Hebrews and the, and the Egyptian people. So apparently God's own people have been suffering along with the Egyptians at this point, right? It doesn't, God doesn't start to differentiate here until this fourth plague. Up until now, the Hebrews have been right in the thick of it along with their Egyptian oppressors suffering. Let's never be a people, church, who think that just because we belong to God, nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. That's never been the case throughout the church's history. Bad things happen to good people. So in verse 25, um, Moses, uh, Pharaoh starts bargaining with God. This is the next level. He starts bargaining with God, a bit of back and forth. In fact, in verse 28, he even asks Moses to pray for him. Um, he, tells Moses, he, can, he tells Moses, look, go out, go out and sacrifice um, to, to your God. But you've got to do it here in Egypt. You can't go out to do it. But Moses is having none of it. The God of the universe, the God beyond time, the God who simply is Yahweh, the God who will be, who we will be, doesn't bargain. He's not going to bargain with you. He's not going to bargain with humanity. He doesn't do the back and forth thing. The, the potentate of time is one of my favourite lines from the old hymns of old called Crowning with Many Crowns. Anyone know the hymn Crowning with Many Crowns? There's a line in it, the potentate of time. The potentate of time doesn't bargain with you. He's not going to bargain with, with Pharaoh. Moses grants him relief. Again, but again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. This guy just doesn't learn. The fifth plague at the start of chapter 9 is on the livestock. What's interesting to note about this plague is that even the animals are starting to die out now. Again, this is a stark contrast to the good ordering of creation. Humankind was put on this planet to care for the animals and the livestock. 
to be its rulers, to be stewards. This is not what should be happening. The animals, poor animals are even suffering at this point because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart. The sixth plague is airborne destruction uh, once again. Moses is commanded to take some soot from the furnaces. And what does he do? In verse 8 of chapter 9, he throws it up into the air, scatters throughout the land and comes down and takes the form of terrible boils upon the people of Egypt, festering painful boils. Now, what I want you to see here is the significance of the furnace. What were God's people doing? If you've been journeying with us, church in the marketplace regularly, what were God's people doing in slavery? What were they making? They were making bricks in the furnace. So this is God's judgment upon this terrible slavery here uh, that God's people were being forced to endure. And it wasn't just Pharaoh doing it. The Egyptians were guilty of it. So this is a right and, and just judgment from God for the terrible oppression and slavery that they had been suffering. Uh, God didn't deprive Pharaoh of, of free will. Let's, let's remember, interestingly, in chapter um, 9, verse 12, um, is, is, there's a shift in Pharaoh. Up until this point, Pharaoh had been hardening his own heart. We get deep into philosophical, theological discussion at this point about predestination, but it's very clear, the first five plagues, it's Pharaoh hardening his own heart. He's got no one to blame but himself. After this, God seemingly gives Pharaoh over to his own desires, and it's God actually hardening Pharaoh's heart or strengthening Pharaoh's heart. God actually gives Pharaoh what he wants. The judgment that Pharaoh is suffering is a result of his own foolish actions. The seventh plague... Uh, is now thundering down from the sky. The sky itself is now raining down destruction upon the, the Egyptians in the form of a devastating hail. Uh, verse 13, if you've got it open there, it takes out the crops, it takes out the beasts of the field, and it takes out people that are still out in the field. Tellingly, in verse 16, if you want to have a look, God actually says to Pharaoh, you know, I could have wiped off the face of the earth at this point if I had have wanted to, but I've raised you up for a purpose, and that is of showing off God's power, that God's name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. And here we are, 3,000, 3,500 years later, on the other side of the world, still reading about it. Note here, if you've got it open in verses 27 to 30 of chapter 9, Pharaoh's now beginning to waver. Pharaoh's now starting to look a little bit shaky, and... Uh, and he actually admits to Moses that he's sinned. He admits that God is right and that he's wrong. He pleads with Moses to make the plague stop and that he'll let the Israelites go free. He promises to let the Israelites free. But Moses knows that Pharaoh isn't fair dinkum, we'd say, in Australia. He's not, he's not really fearing the Lord at all. He just wants the bad stuff to stop happening. Again, we see this all the time today, don't we? In a turbulent season, usually in the middle of usually in the result of our own sinfulness, we have what appears to be repentance, but it isn't really repentance at all. You might have heard one of your own teachers or maybe a parent, maybe you've said it yourself, are you sorry that the bad stuff happened or are you just sorry that you got found out, right? Are you sorry that you did something bad or are you just sorry that you got caught? Well, Pharaoh here is just sorry that he, that he got caught. He's not really repenting 
at all. He's just trying to manipulate the situation. He's trying to manipulate the world, manipulate the situation, manipulate Moses for his own ends. Again, we see it all the time. Yet again in verse 35, Pharaoh hardens his heart again and refuses to come through on his promise to let God's people go. He never negs on his promise. All consuming locusts are next in chapter 10 and they come and destroy what little these poor Egyptians have left. In chapter 10, verse 3, God pleads with Pharaoh, this is our theme for this morning, how long, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long are you going to go on with this pride? How long will you let this madness continue, this willful, arrogant, prideful stance against me? In verse 7, even Pharaoh's advisors are starting to wise up and trying to tell them, just end this, boss. Let them go. Just, just end this. They have now realized that something's got to give. You've got to, got to, got to give in here. Uh, so Pharaoh, again, bargaining with God. Verse 11 says, well, go, but only take the men. We'll, we'll keep the women and the children back here. But Moses is having none of it. He stands up for the women. The women, by the way, have been the hero of the story, if you've been following along over the coming week. He stands up for the women and for the children and even the livestock. He says, no, we're taking, we're all going out to worship God. So Pharaoh is squirming under the weight of full surrender to God. He wants to sort of give a little bit in order to make the bad stuff stuff happening, but still keep a little bit of control for himself. This is a picture of a man who's unraveling before God, realizing that he's being beaten, but refusing to yield, refusing to let go to God, and try to hang on to something for himself that he can control. The penultimate plague before the devastating Passover the ninth plague that we're going to deal with uh, today, we'll deal with the devastating Passover next week. The final plague is simply one of darkness. It's a wonderful verse, verse uh, 21 of chapter 10. It's a darkness you could feel. How about that? Have you ever felt a darkness you could feel? It must have been extraordinarily dark. You need to know that this is a direct smackdown of the sun god Ra. We're all familiar with Ra, the song god of it. This is a direct takedown of Ra, the sun god. Now, whether it's the river god or the sun god and all the gods in between of all those plagues, this is God saying they're fake. They're counterfeit gods. Now, we might look, a, look at those Egyptians and think, how silly were they? How stupid were they? How benighted were they? Worship all of these fake gods, all of these ridiculous gods of nature. But let me ask you, Aussie, are you really that different? I mean, are we really that different? Today, you can't tell me that Aussies running around today here in Sydney, Australia, aren't worshipping fake gods themselves. They're bowing down at the altars of economic prosperity. You tell me, what was the conversation? Economic prosperity, the body beautiful, uh, career progress. Not necessarily bad things, good things even. They worship family. They worship relationships. Worship sexual pleasure, sexual conquest, or even just, you know, plain good old-fashioned, bad old-fashioned Aussie hedonism, just pursuing pleasure, just pursuing the good life. I reckon, frankly, that's the God of many Aussies that I know. They're just pursuing the good life, just pursuing the good life, pleasure in whatever form it might take. We are, we are no better than these people. We are those people. The fact is, God is judging Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their sin. Sin isn't a popular concept these days, but I want you to know, church, that God takes it very seriously. He's serious about sin. 
We like to think of God as painted as a kindly old man with a long flowing beard, sprinkling out blessings whenever we ask for it. But the fact is you can't have God's wrath, his love without God's wrath. If you're a parent, you'll understand this. I've spoken to many of my mates about this bizarre experience of when you become a father. I remember holding a Bethany for the first time and I remember thinking this innocent, this helpless. Human babies are helpless. And they are completely helpless. And they're helpless for years. Like they, I, remember, I remember thinking, I love you, darling. I remember thinking, if anyone tried to hurt her, I will end, I mean, I will end you. I will end you and I would not lose a moment's sleep over it. That is a righteous anger to protect what I love. This is God having the same sort of instinct for his people. His people were being defiled, were being hurt and, and injured. God is bringing righteous justice and, and wrath at this point. So I don't actually think we're that much different from the people of old. In fact, I don't even think we in church are that much different, pastor included, ministers included. We might say we're surrendering God to everything, but we try to snatch a little bit back for ourselves. Sometimes we just want all of God's good stuff. We say we want God, but we really just want his stuff. We really want, we, 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 we don't really want God, God, but his stuff that he gives us is kind of cool, isn't it? It's idolatry. But here's the good news through it all, friends. Here's the good news for you and I and we moderns who really aren't any better than these terrible pagan Egyptians. We worship a gracious God. Amen? We worship a a gracious God. Remember, starting with the fourth plague, God put a, a boundary, a border around his people that protected them. My question is, why would he do that? Were they actually better people than, than the Egyptians? Were they any, if you know your Old Testament, were, the, were, the, were those Israelites any better than any of the other nations around them? In a little while, they're going to finally get their freedom. And while Moses is up the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, this second in command, Aaron, what does he do? Boils down all of their gold, makes a, 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 an, a, an idol of a, of a calf. It's actually an, an idol of the Egyptian god of of Apis, of the God of economic prosperity. These fools watch God smoke all of these Egyptian gods, and then the moment they're out, they're making one for themselves. These people are morons. They're not clever, right? They're not smarter than any of the surrounding nations. If you know your Old Testament, you'll know this pattern happens again and again and again, but God loves them. Why? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9. This famous event is actually referred to in the New Testament a couple of times. And here's what Paul writes in Romans, uh, in Romans chapter, chapter 9. What shall we say? Is God uh, unjust? Uh, from, uh, is God unjust? For he says to Moses in verse 15, I will have compassion on whom I have mercy and will have, have mercy on those who have mercy and compassion on those whom I have compassion, verse 16 is key, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Isn't that good news? Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display all my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. It's not the Hebrews doing, and it's not your doing, it's not my doing. 
We worship a God who loves us and who wants what's best for us, even when we make stupid mistakes, even when we set ourselves up as false gods. If you're a follower of Jesus, Christian, there should be no judgmental swagger in the face you present to the world because we are saved by grace. Our only salvation, it's given, it's not earned. Trying to earn God's salvation, trying to earn your way into God's good book, that's religion and it's terrible. It always ends in tears. The call here to us still today is to full surrender, 100% obedience. The good news is that none of us can achieve it, but despite it all, we worship a gracious Saviour who loves us anyway, who sent his own son to pay the price for our rebellion so that we might be washed clean, whiter than the snow, and once again be able to enter into his presence for all of eternity. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So let me leave you with a couple of questions. Who is the Lord that we should obey his voice? Well, he's the God of all creation. He's the God of rivers and of suns and of everything in between. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the God who, who simply is, the God who will be who he will be. He alone can make the path to true, abundant life known. Everything else is counterfeit. Everything else, following anything else under this sun on this planet, everything else is just apples stapled to trees. How long will you refuse to humble yourself? And come before me, says God. The way we enter the good life, the way we enter abundant eternal resurrection life is by full surrender to God, by repenting and believing on repeat all the days of our life. Friend, humble yourself today and live. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Oh, Lord, it's a tough passage. It's difficult stuff, this destruction upon a nation, Father. We... We pray for the humility to learn through it, even though we might, might not understand it, Father. It's difficult to see you at work at times, particularly through some of these passages where you wreak destruction upon the earth. So we simply ask for the humility, for the ability to humble ourselves before you, to come to you and say, here we are, Lord. Have your way in my life. I'm done with stapling apples to trees. I'm done with setting anything up under the sun as an idol in my life. Come and rule in my life, every part of my life. Help me, Father, to not keep anything from you. Come and blow in, open every door of my life. Come and rule and reign and be sovereign. In Jesus' name. All the people said, Amen. We're going to